Hey, good morning, ResPres. This is Ben Coppage. I'm the RUF campus minister at UGA, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet. I'm excited to get to spend this Sunday morning with you again. I figured why not share with y'all something that we've been talking about together in the RUF community. We spent our Wednesday nights this past summer out under the sunset at Lake Herrick, working through the book of Titus. And it's just the first four verses of this book, Paul's introduction to his letter to Titus, that I wanted to share with you from this morning. A few quick sentences of context in case you're not familiar with this book. Uh, Titus is a church planner. He knows Paul. They're close. Uh, Paul calls him my child in the faith. Um, and, and Titus is, is alone on the island of Crete planting and establishing these churches, trying to get them off the ground. And Paul is writing to encourage him and to give him some instruction on how to do that. There's three brief things that I want to linger on with you in our next 15 minutes together as we consider what it means to take God at his word. The first is that God makes promises. We need to slow down and consider the fact that God makes promises. And then we can get to the second thing. What is it that God promises? And lastly, how does God help you and I hold on to his promises? I believe you've already read the passage together, Titus 1, 1 through 4. If you haven't, um, push pause now and give that a quick read. And I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, now as your word is preached, as your word is heard, um, send your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and apply this living word to our hearts. Reanimate the places that are lethargic. Illumine the places that are darkened. Soften the places that are hard. Um, come and heal us with your word and your promises this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. And while I'm talking and blabbing on these first few minutes, your mind, uh, I want to set your mind free to imagine as you hear me ask some of these questions to you. The first one and the main one is really, when is the last time that you uttered the phrase, I promise, or some verbal equivalent of it? You might have said, you have my word, or I give you my word. Think about it. What's the circumstance that comes to mind? Was it something like, I promise I'll do the dishes after I watch this show? Or, look, I'll promise I'll be home for dinner by six. You have my word. Some of you are business owners. You might have said to a client one time, uh, ma'am, I'm so sorry for our mistake. It'll never happen again. You have my word. What's it for you? Where or with whom do you have to make promises, verbal commitments? And while we're considering that question, let me throw one more at you. Is it the same thing to say, I'll wash the dishes, for example, and I promise I'll wash the dishes. Are those synonymous phrases? Of course they're not, and everybody knows it. When we have to say things like, I promise I'll do this, or you have my word, I'll do that, we're summoning every bit of credibility that we've got left, and we're sticking our necks on the line and saying, trust me, this time I really mean it. This time I'll do it. That's why we have to say it. So why is it that we occasionally have to say it again? Usually we say it for one of two reasons. Either we are unreliable people 
Or you could say unreliable people are the ones who have to say things like, I promise or you have my word. And maybe the reason that we do that is people don't expect anything of us. Maybe we're habitually late or we don't clean up or we've, we've dropped the ball a few times. So people don't expect something of us. And so to salvage our credibility, we've got to kind of add the flourish of a, of a promise, of a commitment, saying this time you can really count on me to do it. This time I will come through for you. Um, but there's another reason, too. It's not just unreliable people that make promises. Sometimes perfectly reliable people who are speaking to someone who's suspicious of them have to make promises, too. So think about maybe a foster mom who says to the skittish eight-year-old who's climbing into bed in their house for the first time, you're going to be safe here, and we're going to take care of you. I promise. In that scenario, the mom is perfectly reliable, but the kid is suspicious of her. And so the mom accommodates herself to the doubts and suspicions and fears of that child to allay or, or banish those fears. So just to catch you up, unreliable people have to make promises to kind of cover for their lack of credibility and perfectly reliable people who are speaking to suspicious people have to make promises too. So then here's the million dollar question that I've really been getting at. Why does the God of the Bible so often have to make promises and even at times say things like, I promise or you have my solemn word? Why does he make promises if what we're saying so far is actually true? Which one is it? Is God well-meaning but unreliable, like many of us? Do his promises ring hollow now? Paul's words and the way he phrases his words in, in these, this opening to the letter certainly would suggest that we often believe that God is unreliable. Sure, we might give him uh, the benefit of the doubt that he's well-intentioned, but we might also believe deep down in our hearts, he sure does disappoint me a lot. It sure does seem oftentimes that there's no follow-through. How do we know this from the text? Look at this. There's some odd language in the passage where Paul is talking about God making promises. In verse 2, he does not say what he could have said. Paul could have said in the positive, God is faithful. Or God keeps his promises. Or he could have said, God has promised us eternal life before the ages begin. He didn't say that, though. Instead, Paul has couched it in the negative. He says, God, parentheses, who never lies, parentheses, promised these things before the ages began. Now, th that is such an odd way to phrase that, to couch it in the negative. Now, imagine I was going to introduce you to a friend or a, you know, a business client maybe, and, I, and, and the way that I introduced you is I said, hey, this is my friend Michael, and, and let me tell you something. Michael's never been convicted of fraud. If you're the one hearing the introduction, you'd immediately be thinking, why in the world did Ben just tell me that Michael has not been convicted of fraud? Because for me to introduce him that way casts a specter of suspicion over Michael. You're immediately wondering, what are they hiding that I don't know about? Or why is he telling me this piece of information? Why is God telling you that, sorry, why is Paul telling us that God never lies? 
Why not just say God tells the truth? Where he's addressing a suspicion that's in all of our hearts. So where does the suspicion come from? Obviously from inside of us. I think we've already kind of established that from inside of us. Um, we have a poor history of follow through. Moms and dads and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and friends and employees and employers, all of us in every facet of our lives have a history of making promises that we struggled to follow through on or just didn't follow through on or couldn't. Sometimes it's a lack of motivation. We just wear out. Sometimes it's a lack of resources. You really, really wanted to be there for a friend, but you ran out of time or didn't have the money to do what you wanted to do. So some of, the, some, of the, some of our suspicion about God following through in his promises is because we know ourselves to be people and we know everybody else to be somebody who really struggles, who intends well, but can't follow through. And so I think we project that onto him sometimes um, in some big ways. Also, I think just from this sense of groaning, how long, O Lord, that's validated and legitimized throughout the Bible. How long, O oh Lord, until you fulfill your promises? So maybe you're a person who has stopped waiting. Maybe you don't think of, a, of God as a liar per se, but maybe you don't expect anything of him anymore because you've been waiting so long and maybe the waiting has turned into a conclusion that he's not going to show up here. Um, now, look, these suspicions are in all of us, but it gets even more complicated because the last thing I think where the why these suspicions are there, the people in the culture around us fan the embers of suspicion in us. If you still have your Bible in your lap, um, look down to uh, verse 12 in chapter one. It wasn't part of the part of the sermon passage or what might have been read before I started talking. But look down at verse 12, where Paul quotes a Cretan poet. It's one of their guys. Paul is quoting one of their authors, their poet laureate, Epimenides. And Epimenides, um, or sorry, Paul says in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of your own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. To be a Cretan in the first century was to be surrounded by unreliable people who would let you down. Maybe to be an American in the 21st century is to be surrounded by unreliable people, be they politicians or bosses or officials or teachers who will let you down. And that rubs off on us, friends. It begins to train us kind of with a cynicism of, I just don't buy it when I hear people make big promises. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is amazing if you've been tracking so far. Though God in his character, God in his person is perfectly reliable, though he is faithful, though he is unveering and following through in his promises to his people, though he has nothing to prove, nothing to, to atone for in a sense, he has never let us down, Though all those things are true, God still accommodates himself to your suspicious heart. And he says to you, like that mother to the foster child, the mother is reliable, but the kid is suspicious. God accommodates himself to our fears and suspicions. And he says out loud, I promise. You could spend the rest of the year 
digging into the content. What has he promised? That I'll never condemn you. That I'll never leave you. That I will let nothing separate you from me. Nothing, not even hell itself. Not even your sin itself. What has he promised? Everyone else may forsake you, but never me. God accommodates himself to our suspicions. He sticks his neck on the chopping block. He has no need to sign and seal his promises to persuade us, but he does it because of where we are and what we need from him. So friends, here's the, here's the point, and here's why we spent so much time on that first point. The, the, the grace, the compassion, the beauty, the miracle that God makes promises, that he says, I promise, I will do this. That in and of itself is a grace. And we can't rush so quickly by the fact that he makes promises to get to what he promises that we we never smell that rose and consider the tender mercy and the fact that he verbalizes his promises to you. So with that being said, what has he promised? What's the content of the promise? In short, Paul says here, eternal life, the hope of or the certainty of the 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 certain anticipation of eternal life with him. And I think, look, if we had more time, we could flesh this out. You'll have time to flesh this out. But I think he's using that as an umbrella term. You know, eternal life with God is this massive um, horizon-stretching reality that really sums up all of what it means to live with God, our Father, our Savior, our Spirit, the Helper, forever, and all of his people, all of the saints in eternal life. Now, some, for some of you, um, there's you think a lot about eternal life, about the age to come. Your wife is with the Lord right now. Your husband is with the Lord right now. Your dad or your your kids, your, your grandparents, a, a best friend of yours. Or life is so hard that you have trained your hopes on the age to come. But for a lot of us, the thought of eternal life is is pretty uneventful and boring. This summer when we were talking about this passage, um, I asked our students, what do you think of when you think of eternal life? And you know when you've been in a small group and it just gets awkward, people stare at their feet because they don't want to talk, they don't, nothing's coming to their minds? Well, after a minute or two of awkward silence, um, I, I tried a different tact because no conversation was coming um, out of that. And so... What I did is I said, have you ever experienced a moment in your life that you wished never ended? Where you wished that time itself would freeze and you'd get to stay there in that place with that person or whoever you were with forever? Were you, have you ever been so captivated in a moment that you lost track of time? You never wanted it to end. Guess what happened when I phrased it that way? Ear to ear smiles. And people started sharing stories of, you know, a, a family dinner that they had when their family, you know, went to Italy one summer for a week. Or they talked about a wedding reception that they went to. It just felt like the heavens parted and it was, everything in the world was right. Everybody started to light up as they described moments that they wished had last forever. So I ask you, what about for you? Have you ever lived a moment that grazed the outer edges of eternity even ever so faintly? Maybe an evening at the beach, 
uh, a childhood memory. I saw it recently, a dad dancing with his daughter on the night of her wedding, his last dance with his daughter, the night he gave her away. I could see it in his eyes. He wanted that moment to last forever. He was frozen in time. The reason that these moments are so euphoric and the reason we want time to freeze is that they're a faint shadow of the promise we solidly possess in Christ that one day we will enjoy in him and with him. What all these stories that come to your mind of that that, that eternal moment have in common is that there was no fear in that place. You were safe there. The world was right. Uh, you, you felt and knew God's presence. Stress and worries and the brokenness of the world were not allowed in, even if it was just for a few minutes. Friends, these memories, these are just tokens of God's mercy, little shadows of a greater reality that is coming. And here's the best part. In this eternal moment, in this eternal life Paul's talking about that God has promised, and he told you he promised this, you will be with God, your Father, Christ, your willing and able Redeemer, the Spirit of Jesus, your Counselor and Friend and Helper, and all the saints. So God makes promises to you, and the content of the promise, the overarching umbrella promise that he's made to you is that he will live with you forever here in a world where he has wiped away every tear, every trial, no more death, no more sickness, no more mourning or crying or pain or confusion. Those old things will have passed away and the new will come. God will dwell with us here forever. And friends, it'll be an eternal moment and you'll wish it never ended. You'll wish tomorrow would never come. You want to hold on to the moment forever. And guess what? It will last forever. What John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace will be our story when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. I want to end practically and helpfully and maybe send you off into your discussions of the passage right after this message with this last point. How does God help us hold on to the promises he's made to us? Because otherwise, so far, this message is basically a message of, um, hey, it's really important that God makes promises to you, and the promises that he made to you are all summed up in eternal life with him through Jesus but, but what are we supposed to do with this today? How does he help you hold on to it? Um, I'll be brief here because I know you all can discuss this more. But there were church planters on the island of Crete for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul said that. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of your faith and the knowledge of the truth and your knowledge of the truth. So there were church planters. There were apostles even for us today, God gave apostles for the sake of your faith to record these words. God has sent church planters for the sake of your faith, pastors in your life for the sake of your faith, spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters and children for the sake of your faith. He has not just left you to take his word for it, but he has surrounded you with a cloud of witnesses who take his word for it and help you 
take his word for what it is. The effect of all of this is a strengthening confidence that your God is good. That little boy with the foster mother over time, gradually beginning to hold more tightly to her promises that she will in fact take care of him. I want to end with this story now. This is an old Google commercial Uh, a few years ago. You might remember it. It was called the Dear Sophie ad. It was pretty famous. The ad basically went like this. A dad um, created a Gmail account for his soon-to-be-born daughter, whose name was Sophie. So on the day that she's born, he sends his first email to dearsophielee at gmail.com. And he sends her a picture of him holding his newborn daughter, Sophie. And it says, you arrived. I'm still getting the hang of holding you. About a year later, he sends another email to the address and it says, Happy first birthday, Sophie. And it's a video clip of her smashing her cake. A while later, he sends her an email. You're a big sister. You wanted to name him Salt. And it's her, a picture of her holding her new little brother. When she was five, he wrote Sophie an email. And in the subject line, it said, When you were in the hospital. And he said in the email uh, with a picture of her in the hospital bed, you had a really bad fever and we felt so hopeless. He emails her a few years later a picture of a little drawing that she scribbled for him for Father's Day. And he wrote, best Father's Day ever. And there's videos of her riding her bike for the first time, ballet recitals, learning to swim. And she gets older and older. And it ends with him typing the last email. You're growing up so fast. I've been writing to you since you were born. I can't wait to share these with you someday. Until then, love, Dad. Can I just leave you with this thought? Imagine what it's like to be Sophie Lee growing up. Incrementally, slowly waking up to an ancient love from her father that preceded even her birth. He had been pursuing her since before day one. He had known her, delighted in her, celebrated her since before she was born. And she literally grows up and opens these messages. They are made manifest in the real moments and events and times of her life. These promises, Paul said, are made manifest in the real events of history, in the real events of our lives. And you and I, as Christians, are slowly waking up to an ancient love from our Father. Let's pray. Father, all of your promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Spirit, plant us in him, show us him. And now, um, in this discussion, would you soften our hearts and open our eyes Uh, to hear you speak your promises to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.